Good morning. <clears throat> I want to make sure that I am wired for sound here. I'm really good with this sort of thing, so <laughs> you're going to see skill in action here. Is a light supposed to come on? All right, please turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 8, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to be focusing mainly on verses 34 to 30, 38, but I'm going to begin the reading uh, now with uh, verse 31. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. <clears throat> and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, our teacher, our comforter, through your Spirit, we ask now, Lord, that you will teach us from this word, which is always fresh. It is your voice speaking to us, calling our name, calling our names. We ask, Lord, that we will hear what you have to say to us and be challenged, but also, Lord, to be encouraged as your church, as your people. We thank you for the work that you are continuing to do in this congregation, which we pray we can sum up by saying, to you be the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> During World War I, in Great Britain alone, uh, one million men lost their lives, one million. Uh, almost an entire, figuratively a generation of British soldiers, British men were obliterated. And then just 22 years later, when those casualties and all that upheaval in Europe were still a fairly recent memory, then 
Britain was drawn into war again. And in a way, they had no choice. Um, and then Winston Churchill became the prime minister, and in a speech to parliament about where to go forward, how to go forward, Churchill didn't say something like, you know, the war is going to go over, go, be, be over soon. Let's keep talking to Hitler and see if we can sue for peace, etc., etc. He said these very blunt, truthful words. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I have nothing to offer. That reminded me of the Christian life. Not that we don't have joy and happiness, but there is something to be said for the sobering side of the Christian life. In the 1990s, uh, my wife and I were seriously thinking about the mission field. We did this a couple times um, in, in our marriage, uh, thinking about going overseas to serve in another place. And as we considered it, uh, I sent an email to my friend Johnny Long, an MTW missionary who was serving in Nairobi, Kenya. And um, I asked him, you know, what, what's it like to be a missionary there? And uh, Johnny began on purpose with the bad news. Johnny was a happy missionary. He and his wife, Becky, uh, loved the Lord, were, saw fruitful work of the gospel in Kenya. But he began with the bad news. He said uh, several paragraphs that amounted to Nairobi is dirty, it's dangerous, it's corrupt, it's overcrowded, it's chaotic. Uh, power is frequently out. You can't drink the water unless you clean it ahead of time. So here was blunt truth from a seasoned witness for Jesus Christ in a certain place who was committed to serve in that place. And then I think of, as I think of Churchill and, and transplant it to the, the church again, I think of a, an advertisement in a missions magazine that I saw many years ago, which said, wanted missionaries to Muslims, bitter cold, scorching heat, sickness almost certain, possible imprisonment, safe return not guaranteed, honor and recognition from peers doubtful, eternal rewards. And then there was the name of the mission and the contact info. Sometimes the things we need to hear from our Lord are the blunt facts to continue to put our service in perspective. Jesus makes clear in this passage that we've read together that serving him in the way that he calls us to do it most of the time will not be easy. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, of course, only Jesus' cross can save us. Only Jesus' cross can justify us. What Jesus means by cross when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross, he means that what came to him as our Savior now that we're in him, we will experience, too, 
as his representatives in this life on this earth. So back in verse 41, before, before Jesus rebukes Peter, you remember he says, and this is his disciples didn't get it at the time, you know, uh, the Son of Man must suffer many things, <clears throat> excuse me, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then later on, in John 15, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus, by cross, means the life that you will live if you follow him faithfully. It's a very, very good life. In fact, it's the best life you can have as a Christian. There are many blessings. There's much joy, especially if you're with, you know, actively part of the local church. But nevertheless, it's a hard life too because we're carrying out the coming of the kingdom and the world resents the kingdom. What is the life of bearing witness for Jesus' like? In verses 34 to 38, Christ tells his disciples two hard facts about their lives as good witnesses. And then he tells something else, a third thing that illustrates especially the second fact. And I think they're up there, or they will be. The, the, first, the first point is this. Being a faithful Christian means serving in the only credible cause. Being a Christian means serving in the only credible cause. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Notice what Jesus does not say there. Jesus does not say, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. He says something additional, which is what sets us apart from other people. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. You see, the world is full of causes. We see people rallying. We see people cheerleading. We see people sometimes rioting for different causes trying to solve the world's problems their own way, but because the human race has caused its problems on the earth by its sin, it sure can't come up with a solution on its own. That's just not going to work, especially when we talk about moral issues. There's a special name now that often is used positively in our society for people who try to solve the world's problems and the United States problems, and that's activists, lots of activists. I subscribe to two newspapers, one because I live in the area, that's the Philadelphia Inquirer, that's why I grind my teeth frequently, especially with the front section. That's another, um, that's another, sec that's another sermon. And the, and the Wall Street Journal, but in the, in the, in the Inquirer, um, 
it seems like every day in the, the, um, the obituaries, which are very interesting to read in some ways, very descriptive of people, but there's always one or two in there who are admirably called activists. And uh, usually, usually they don't have an eternal perspective. Their approach to the world's problems really hasn't made much of a righteous difference. And many of them approach the grave deeply, deeply disillusioned. If you want real progress, you can only be one kind of activist. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Jesus, Jesus is saying in this passage, I'm going to lead you, I am leading you into a unique kind of activism, a godly activism, in which sinners saved by my grace will follow me and declare and demonstrate the good news about me. And frankly, he says to his disciples, living like that, as a high cost. But beyond that, <clears throat> this is embedded between the lines, <clears throat> you'll know it's worth it. It's interesting that during most of the Apostle Paul's 30 plus years of service to Christ and his church, he faced heavy opposition from people but he didn't regret the work he did for his Savior. He never, never hung it up. When you were active and honest for Christ, again, is your life easier? Not usually. But Jesus reminds us that we, his church, are part of the only credible cause. That brings us to the second point. Being a faithful Christian <clears throat> means serving Christ in a woeful world. Serving Christ in a woeful world. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We tend to be nearsighted when we follow Jesus when we live. We tend to see everything as imminent and urgent right now. But in fact, when Jesus says generation here, this adulterous and sinful generation, he's talking about the human race between his death and his resurrection and when he comes again. That's what he means by generation. Now, look at all the people around you with the eyes of Jesus. Ask him to give you wisdom about that. I've said to you before, I can see any stranger anywhere and I can tell you two important true facts about him or her. First of all, God has created whoever they are in his image. And secondly, if they're not reconciled to God through Christ, They've distorted his image, and they worship other gods because their hearts are dark and polluted by pride and selfishness. And you and I are here in the middle of this mess. 
but don't brag. Because until Christ called us through the faithful ministry of other disciples, we were a part of that mess. And once you become a Christian and you start to grow and you consider the world according to the Bible, you see that it can be really intimidating. It is intimidating. If you look at the world honestly, regularly, and especially if you look at yourself honestly and regularly, it'll wear you out. I love what uh, Jody's mother's, well, one of Jody's mother's former pastors uh, said about the messes we make for ourselves in the world. He said, you know, the human race has a hundred ways to mess up, and we try them all. We try them all. And that's what we're looking at. And, and the thought of sharing the good news with people who are not reconciled to God can be unappealing. And, and we find ourselves thinking, and it ought to be a prayer so that the Lord can constantly buoy us back up. Lord, you know, I, 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 I love you. Uh, but I don't know. Just look at the way people are. Why, Lord, it's, it's, it's an adulterous, sinful generation. I'm afraid. And Jesus says, I know. I'm the one who told you about this present generation. Remember? And remember how before I called you to myself, how you were once adulterous and sinful? You remember that? And then... People shared with you the good news, and the Spirit transformed you to repent and believe, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to go out with people, out among people in the world. Are you going to follow me? Have you really counted the cost? Now be encouraged. Uh, consider this, because mainly this is a sermon about evangelism. When God regenerates you, he doesn't change your personality. He doesn't make you, if you're a basic, normal person, for example, who doesn't like to get up and do public speaking. He doesn't change you into a dynamic public speaker. He works with your personality. He, part of sanctification is he develops you. He develops you. And he will give you opportunities to share Christ with people who are part of an adulterous and sinful generation. Those opportunities will be custom-made for you. And you're probably one of those saints who thrives on low-key, mundane circumstances and conversations. And so it's important for you as part in the context of the church, to talk to other people who don't know Christ and get to know them, have conversations with them, and always pray. Pray to listen carefully to people. And you'll find out where they're coming from. I, I heard a principle a long time ago. Uh, it probably was in a detective novel, uh, but, but it applies. It applies to Christians getting to know people for the sake of Christ. And that is, if you listen to someone carefully, after a while, you will discover they're telling you things about themselves 
that you don't, they don't even know they're telling you. Listen carefully and pray. Because it's about relationship most of the time. You know, the, the primacy of, of preaching and, and, and the worship of the church is that the gospel is declared and that's always supreme, but that's part of our life apart from when we worship together to share. And, and learning to trust Christ and share the news about him too, if you feel weak and shy about it, is, is a process. I love the way Jesus puts being a fisher of men earlier in this gospel in chapter 1. I will make you, he says, to become fishers of men. That's the process. Another thing, being a good witness, it's more than individual obedience. It's got to be part of a corporate endeavor, always. The church should mobilize to this end to share the gospel. That's why before COVID, uh, and again, I'm, I'm out of the pastoral loop, but the, the plan at that point was to, to gear up with uh, Christianity Explored and make that a part of our church reaching out. There's more than one way to do it for a church. And, you know, you don't have to save anyone, because you can't. Only God can save a person. That's, that's God's work. And about those adulterous and sinful people, including the really obnoxious loud ones, have you observed that some people who have become Christians, before they believe, were most openly opposed to the gospel? that God brought them home. Take a good look at people around you who, like you once were, are without Jesus Christ. It's a woeful world. Lots of people without Christ will go to hell. I mean, people, people without Christ will go to hell if they don't repent and trust in him. And one of the ways Jesus grabs hold of them, part of the plan of salvation is God uses people who were sinners saved by grace to give the good news that saves. Take a look at them. Take a look at people who don't have Christ, who don't have forgiveness, who don't have eternal life. Do you remember for yourself the way it was? Do you remember your daily acute struggle with temptation and, and giving in and being dominated by sin? You know, maybe there's somebody here this morning who's going through that each day. Listen to what Jesus says. He's not just warning us here. He is warning us to be faithful. But he, he, he excuse me, he's not just warning his disciples. But he also invites the crowd to listen to him as well. And you can bet that in that crowd, there are many people who are not his disciples. At least not yet. Which brings us to the third point, which illustrates this sinful, adulterous generation. And that is, being a faithful Christian means serving lost sinners. Being a faithful Christian means serving lost sinners. Verses 36 and 7, 
Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now here Jesus is giving us a case study in, 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 in broad terms of people who are sinful and adulterous. Sinful means, when Jesus says that this generation is sinful, he means that they're just opposed to God. They're opposed to holiness. They're opposed to righteousness. They don't want God, though he has created them. They don't want him calling the shots with their lives. And so they're miserable. And when Jesus says adulterous, he doesn't mean that all the husbands and wives who are Christians are out committing adultery. He means spiritual adultery. He means that they have other spiritual lovers than God, and all of those other lovers fall flat on their face because there's nothing. There's nothing in the creation that can save my soul. J.C. Ryle says, How can a man lose his soul? In many different ways. He may murder it by loving sin and cleaving to the world. He may poison it by choosing a religion of lies and believing man-made superstitions. He may starve it by neglecting all means of grace and refusing to receive into his heart the gospel. Ryle continues, there are many ways that lead to the pit. Whatever way a man takes, he and he alone is accountable for it. Weak, corrupted, fallen, impotent as human nature is, man has a, mere, a mighty power of destroying, ruining, and losing his own soul. Of all unprofitable and foolish bargains that man can make, the worst is that of giving up his soul salvation for the sake of this present world. It's a bargain of which thousands have repented too late. And it's often accompanied by a defiant spirit. You remember last week, one of uh, John's illustrations was about Frank Sinatra's attitude toward God, or at least his apparent attitude. And in that song, My Way, you know, one of the verses says, for what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. You know, not one of those spiritual cripples who depends on God. And the fact is, many people, and you know because you used to be one, many people look at their temporary life here and they think, this is more important than eternity. They really believe that. If they believe at all in eternity, that's what they think. John Piper tells a story about people who value the world more than they do their souls. He talks about years ago in the late 90s, there was a, he read this in Reader's Digest about a young couple who, who retired early. They were able to retire early and and he was 59 and she was 51. And he said, you know, now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, which is a very affluent area on the Gulf Coast, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler and they play softball and collect shells. What fun. 
No mention of books there. And, and Piper says, Piper says, tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture this couple standing before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? The next chapter is the following year, as I recall, in 1999, during the summer, a big hurricane blew through that part of Florida and destroyed the marina in Punta Gorda. You know, Jeff Bezos is 57. That's not really young. He has a new $500 million yacht. $500 million yacht. What's he going to do with it? And, and how long is he going to do it before he's gone? The question is, you know, what are you living for? What are you living for? And, and even as Christians, we have to admit we're tempted by some of these things. I recently read a small part of an interview with a rapper. And I'm not even sure I have his name right, but it, it looks like ASAP Rocky. And uh, here's what the interview says about this guy, ASAP Rocky. Nothing, not money, not fame, not the prospect of top chart positions or Grammy awards or other traditional metrics of musical success gets Rocky out of bed like the pursuit of elevated taste value. That's me. You know, I want elevated taste value. But first, I have to know what it is. <laughs> and then I'm going to live for that. One other illustration. If you have some spare time, uh, go to the public library to the biography section and read about the last days of people who gained the world and forfeited their souls. If you want a sobering lesson, Especially read about, if, if it's in the biography, read about their last hours. Sometimes just their last minutes. You know, it's scary if you're not reconciled to God. And everything you have and you've trusted in is slipping away. And you crave something more substantial. You know what the last words of Queen Elizabeth I were when she was on her deathbed, and she was frantic. Not the present Queen Elizabeth, but the first one in the 16th century. She said, all my possessions for a moment of time. All my possessions for a moment of time. In the past few years, a lot of people have been using sort of a chic new term, existential threat. Existential threat. You know what that's code for, right? Climate change. Okay, so, and there is climate change. With the, big, the, big, the big disagreement is over who or what's causing it. But you know, the real existential threat is that you perish in hell. That's the real threat to your existence. 
And Jesus tells us the pathology of that in verses 36 and 37, before and after it. It's basically, Jesus is giving us a two-sentence horror movie. Part A, you make a bad deal. Part B, you can't reverse it. You can't get your soul back. What do you have in this life that really lasts? In this life, on, on this earth, what do you have that really lasts? <clears throat> After certain disasters, the only thing left of most of the victims is just a few of their personal effects. And so that if, if the family comes and tries to identify whether or not their loved ones or friends were in the plane or in the World Trade Center, that kind of thing, um, they, can, they can see a picture or part of a driver's license that survived and, and verify that, yes, indeed, that was my uncle or whoever on the flight. And a number of years back, a jet that was going from Chicago to Los Angeles crashed on takeoff. And one of the items extracted and saved was a photo of a man who was accepting somebody else's toast of congratulations. And on the back of the photo, it said, promoted to senior accountant. Now, I am not saying that if you're an accountant that you're doomed. I don't mean that. But what if you're depending on that? You know, how long does that promotion last? Jesus tells to go to people who are living for today. One of the great Christian sins is, and I know because I am often guilty of it, not talking about eternity and the blood of Jesus Christ to people who are like that, who are trying to squeeze full satisfaction from lives that are so short, so quick. The only way to have eternal life is through something greater, and that's faith in Christ. And Peter says to struggling but faithful churches in a section of the world today that we call Turkey, in his first letter, I love this. Here's things that last. I've abbreviated this from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And of course, the ticket to those things that never go away, never shift, never dissolve, is Jesus. Knowing the living God. Jesus tells sinners saved by grace to go to adulterous and sinful people around us. Has your heart ever ached for someone who was not a Christian and they were dear to you? And because they were not a Christian, or maybe because they are not a Christian, it causes you great pain, great consternation. There's a, there's a hymn in the Trinity hymnal called, Let Your Heart Be Broken. One of the verses, I think it's verse 3, blessed to be a blessing, privileged to care, challenged by the need, apparent everywhere, 
where mankind is wanting, fill the vacant place. Be the means through which the Lord reveals his grace. So there you have them. Jesus' sobering worlds to his disciples. And some who were not disciples yet. There's, there's only one credible cause. And that's serving me well, he says, in a woeful world in which people are lost. They're walking, as we saw in Sunday school, in darkness. And they're rebelling, they're perishing. And the thing is, Jesus equips us in himself as we're united to him by faith to go to people just as people came to us. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Go into the world, he says, and make disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll become witnesses. What does a church, a congregation, look like that really takes hold of Jesus' words and is faithful? Is Olive Street Presbyterian Church a church like that? Is OSPC a healthy church? I think so, yes. I think it is. I served, I served with you and observed you for 15 years, and now I'm a much more low-profile part of the congregation, and I'm still observing you and praying for you as I pray that you're praying for me. By all indications, this congregation is staying spiritually healthy and growing. And that's the kind of people who learn in Christ Jesus to take up their cross because of his cross and follow him. Living for the only good cause there is in a woeful world. So when I say I think this is a healthy church. Why do I say that? Why am I confident to say that? I don't mean why are we perfect. There's no church on earth that's perfect. But why are we doing pretty good by the grace of God to his praise? You want to hear my list? Let me give you my list. This is not necessarily an order of importance. I'm a lateral thinker. I don't do things like in order of importance. First of all, solid preaching and teaching that glorifies Christ crucified and risen, who's ascended to the Father's right hand, coming again in power and glory. The second thing, an emphasis on the one God. We are Trinitarian Christians. That's crucial in our worship and thinking. Another thing, good fellowship. There's good fellowship in this church. A warm welcome for visitors. That's important. And we have, in this church, we have good shepherds. We have pastors and elders who are energetically and practically committed to the Lord's work here and who stay in touch with the congregation. Not to mention a senior pastor whose love of pasta <laughs> is is unexcelled. 
We have a congregation whose members minister to each other during tough times. We have a high view of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have a good location that the Lord's provided for us here at 1400 Olive Street, room for worship, for education, for fellowship, for study, for service. And it's set squarely, this physical building in a place with many spiritual problems, which, according to the Bible, are opportunities. And with members who are committed to reaching out. I don't need to say this to you, but let me remind you of a few of the past endeavors. And I'm confident that other endeavors will go forward, but there was VBS, teaching English as a second language, Young Lives, Chester County Women's Services, Christianity Explored, the no-cost thrift shop. This is a congregation which is committed to prayer, a congregation that's aware of being the body of Christ, is conscious of being part of a network of like-minded churches in a similar denomination. And I'm seeing more and more, and this is especially heartening to me, a growing variety of ages in this congregation. That's important. This is a congregation who I believe looks ahead expectantly. And again, this is not necessarily an order of importance. It probably been, would have been way up toward the top of the list. Committed deacons and more deacons to be ordained and trained. And those deacons, according to the BCO, will be joined by other members who are not deacons who will help them carry out their work. And I think, if I read the BCO correctly, committed especially to mercy ministry. This is a congregation who is aware kingdom-wise, who has an eternal perspective, who has a high view of worship, a high view of church membership, and we have the understanding, all of us, I think, that if we really want to grow, you and I must read the Bible regularly and pray. In other words, have quiet times with the Lord and, and practice fellowship with each other. And then last, but again not least, the desire that our congregation will reflect the growing presence of many cultures right where we are. At the same time, a caution, brothers and sisters, help us not to forget. There are many good churches. You can see that in the first church that Christ walks, walks among in Revelation chapter 2. Ephesus, they're doing great. They have great programs, etc., but they've lost their first love. So let's... We ought to pray, Lord, help us not to forget. Now, at the same time as we say these things, the, the words, the warnings, the concerns of Jesus ring true because the culture, we know, is getting colder and crueler and more complicated and more confused. And this, this culture is when and where our Lord has placed us. J.H. Bavink said, the battle must be fought 
and the great word said. I like that. That's the gospel, the great word. We need each other. We need each other to work together to obey Jesus' words here, to be activists, to, to do things, to do the things we do for his sake in the Gospels, to be realist. Yes, this generation, like all the others, is sinful and spiritually adulterous. And people are all around us with malnourished views of eternity, and to them we say, by God's grace, as we work together, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, for giving us new lives in Christ, new outlooks, the opportunity in this life to grow and grow and grow, to love you, to love each other in the church. Oh, Father. Continue your work in the congregation, Olive Street Presbyterian Church. Bless each member, Lord, with a, with, a, with a growing, tantalizing vision of the power and the beauty of Christ in the gospel, we pray. We thank you for what you're going to do. And we ask, Lord, we thank you for your patience for us, your love for us. Help us to please you, not because... You're not already pleased with us in Christ, but because we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.